Last few months, we have been on a journey together through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, a teaching in which we see the type of life that's possible for humans who desire to flourish. And what we've seen throughout this, this teaching of Jesus is that when we trust, when we follow Jesus, it can produce a life of flourishing in us. Now, if you've been following along this sermon series, there is no doubt that what Jesus is saying is incredibly challenging. These teachings of his challenge us at the very core issues that intersect our daily lives. Things like, you know, anger and, and lust and marriage and integrity. Like, those are things that touch on at least one, two, or three points of our lives on a regular basis. And even though Jesus has challenged us, I, I think most of us would agree that it would be great to be free of bitterness, right? Or free from sexual addictions. It would be wonderful to have just healthy marriages that last and thrive throughout all time. Uh, and it would feel so good to be so secure that we never have to put on a mask or pretense that our yes is yes and our no is no. But when we get to the passage that we're going to look at today, it's something altogether more challenging. And I, I say not only more challenging because it's difficult to imagine us being like what Jesus is talking about, but if I am, if I'm honest with myself, I'm not sure I always want to be the kind of person that Jesus is talking about. I'm not quite sure I want to give up that part of me. And before I read this difficult passage that, that Jesus have for, has for us today, I want to remind myself and you and me of two main keys for interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Two main keys for wherever you're at in the Sermon on the Mount. Here are two things that we have to remember. First of all, however difficult the sayings are in the Sermon on the Mount, everything that Jesus has to say is supposed to be good news. It's good news for people who are looking for how to flourish in your life. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount is an illustration from Jesus for what life in his kingdom can look like. And that's inherently good news. Second, the main reason that the Sermon on the Mount is good news is because Jesus fulfills the ethical commands, the ethical examples that he has in the Sermon on the Mount. He actually fulfills them in his person. And Jesus then invites us, those who claim to follow him, to be his disciples, to learn to be like him. But the fact is, is that he fulfills each of these teachings and that is what means that you and I can have acceptance into his family and into his kingdom and into his salvation. Acceptance into his family and kingdom and salvation is not dependent on you and me flawlessly following these ethical commands. That's good news because Jesus has fulfilled them in himself. He's fulfilled them. He said, I've done what, what humans can't do. And now I'm inviting you in my power to follow me. I want you to thrive like I'm showing you how to do. That's amazing. So those two things, good news and good news because 
Jesus fulfills these things. Okay, so we've got that foundation, that groundwork laid. Now I'm going to read the difficult passage that I set us up for. It's Matthew 5, 38 through 42, and it goes like this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Lord, we need your help not only to understand what it is that you're saying, but I want your help to stick with what you're saying and not to shy away from it. And I pray that you would give me and us courage to trust that what you're saying is good news, is good news for our lives, is good news for the world. Help us. Amen. So how is this passage good news for us? Let's find out. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Someone pokes your eye out, (laughs) you get to poke their eye out. Sounds very barbaric, does it not? That happens to be one of the most civilized law codes of the ancient world, known as the Lex Talionis. It's found in Hammurabi's code. First, that's the first evidence we have of it from the year 2600 BC. And you have to understand that prior to this idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the ancient Near East was a lot like stories we hear about the Wild West. If someone insulted or injured you or a family member, the normal thing to do would be to grab a brother or a cousin, a posse. You would go back to that family who insulted you and you'd beat the heck out of them. Maybe you break an arm or leg or nose. You do some damage. You could probably expect that then a week later they would come with some brothers and cousins and a bigger posse and they would do something to your family. They might actually kill someone then your group gets bigger, and you see how this goes, escalating violence, very much like a gangster movie. And so God gives this law to stop these vicious cycles of escalating violence. And he tells the leaders of Israel in particular that the punishment must fit the crime. This stipulation of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was to be carried out not by individuals, but by judges from from the Israeli eldership. It was to be exercised by the court, not by family members or or individuals. So prior to that law, any individual would seek mortal revenge for offenses no matter how minor. And revenge would be fostered and it would fester for generation after generation and grow and grow and grow. It's why you have these, you know, Montagues and Capulets for all the people doing the uh, Romeo and Juliet lesson right now in in, uh, sophomore high school. Or, uh, yeah, like... Some families in the Deep South still have these things. They won't talk to each other. Anyway, it's not just the Deep South. Let's face it. You guys talk to all your families still? Good for you. Uh, but I mean, like, like there's, there's feuds that happen and, and things get said and things escalate and it's gross. And that's what this is supposed to stop. It is a stopgap. 
The law checks the tendency for human beings to take the law into their own hands. It's a, it, it's a redemptive law from the perspective of a culture to which it was given. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this tit for tat, this you, you do to me so I do exactly to you, that was never in scripture. It is never portrayed as God's ultimate ideal for human flourishing. It's just like, you guys are really ruining each other's lives. Let, let's just stop it like a tourniquet, okay? We're gonna stop it right there, one for one. It was a law to prevent further harm, just like earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we heard about giving a woman a certificate of divorce was a concession for hard-heartedness, but divorce was never God's ideal plan, and neither is an eye for an eye. So, as Jesus has been doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's not canceling or doing away with the law, but he's teaching us to live into the ethic behind the law. And he seeks to fulfill this law and, and the prophets. And so with that in mind, let's have a look at what Jesus is saying in this teaching. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for, the, a tooth, for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Uh, let me just pause right there. We've, I've got some problems with that statement. Do not resist an evil person. You probably have some problems with that statement. Some of the problems are hard because it's just a hard statement. Some of the problems are hard because the translation isn't great, okay? NIV, NASB, ESV, TNIV. All have resist in there for do not resist an evil person. But that translation isn't the best rendering of this Greek word um, that, that stands behind it, anistani. Um, first of all, that word has a wide range of meaning th than merely resist. It can mean to stand against or to retaliate or to, to seek revenge. And so just right there, there's a wider range of meaning than just resist. But the second reason, I think the, the weightier reason that we shouldn't translate that word as resist is the fact that the biblical context shows a very different picture. So, for example, Jesus himself clearly resisted evil, like, all the time. He cast out demons. He intensely confronts human leaders who are spreading evil. Later on in the New Testament, we see that the early church leaders like Peter and Paul are resisting and confronting corrupt authorities, even corruption and authorities within the church. James, Jesus' own brother and leader of the early church, flat out commands us to resist the evil one and the powers of evil. So the point of Jesus' statement here is found in the context. The law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was to prevent revenge-laden violence from escalating and escalating and escalating. And Jesus is saying that the ethic behind that law is love. And he's calling us to do away with revenge altogether. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not seek revenge. I say to you, do not seek your own vengeance. That's a, a better translation of that sentence. And why? Why would Jesus say that about revenge? I think he's aware 
of how intoxicating vengeance can make us feel. When we're on the war path of revenge, either through physical violence or passive-aggressive violence or gossip or simply hating someone in an effort to hurt them emotionally, we become slaves to our feelings of vengeance and revenge. We get self-righteous. We feel strong and powerful. We feel like we're doing something positive in response to how we've been hurt. And just think of how many, how many narratives and books and music and film are stories about revenge. Even the Avengers movies, there's like 20-something of these movies that are all about avenging. Um, and, and, you know, anyway, you know what they're all about. And why do you think that these, these types of narratives are, are so popular? Well, part of it is a natural human impulse and a God-given human impulse to be frustrated with injustice, Revenge-centered plots are appealing because we can live vicariously through the story. We, we, we have a real sense that the world and the systems of the world are broken, and so we're attracted to vigilantes who take the law into their own hands and, and, and you know, get the bad guy because that's what we want to see happen all the time. And Jesus is saying, do not meet evil with more evil. Defeat evil with crazy goodness. And he gives us four examples, four illustrations. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let me ask you, is Jesus giving us more laws here? You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, four new laws. Do you think that's what Jesus is doing? I know, it's a trick question. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. But um, no, he's not giving us four new things to do. He's not giving us four new laws. If, if he was giving, let's, let's just play this out a little bit. Like, how useful would they be? Like, when was the last time you got slapped on the right cheek and you had to think to yourself, self, should I slap back or turn the other cheek? Like, this is not very, I don't think people were getting slapped a lot in the first century either. When was the last time you were wearing just two pieces of clothing and someone wanted to sue you for your underpants and then you said, you know what? I'm just gonna... I'm going to give you my bathrobe, too, and walk around naked all day. Because people in the ancient world wore two pieces of clothing, an inner tunic, kind of like long johns, and an outer robe. That, it's, supposed to, it's supposed to sound ridiculous. I bet you're not normally, and maybe I'm wrong, but you're probably not normally forced into walking a mile with a Roman soldier, are you? <laughs> Anyone out there ever had that happen to you? No. Um, these examples are something that ancient teachers used to make a point, and it's called a focal instance. They didn't call it that. That's all of our scholarly lingo that we, uh, we, how, how, we, how we label things nowadays, but focal instance. And the idea is this. A teacher is making a general point to get that point across. They use a very hyper-specific and shocking and unpractical example so that the hearer is forced to use their imagination to see how the command plays out in real life. So it's kind of like a literal slap in the face. 
uh, yeah, this doesn't happen to me all the time. I don't normally get slapped in the face, and I don't normally have to make that decision, but kind of wakes me up. I normally don't get sued for my underpants and then have to decide whether or not to give my bathrobe or, you know, my cloak to someone else. But that has sure shocked me into thinking, what is Jesus saying? How would I creatively live this out? Behind each of these examples lies a specific kind of injury to a person. So take the slap on the right cheek. This is a form of personal violence against someone else, but in the first century, it was more specifically a direct insult to a person's honor. Public insult in the ancient world was not only painful and embarrassing, but it could also affect your social standing, the status of your entire family, if you represented your family, uh, and even your entire village, if someone from another village did that to you in public, how you respond to them could bring honor or shame on your entire people that you represent. And the expected counter to an insult like that would be to escalate the fight, to defend your name, to reciprocate with an equal or better comeback against that person. So in this specific example, Jesus is saying, don't seek revenge when you're personally insulted. Don't seek revenge when you're personally attacked. Now, the second example is of a person who owes their debtor more money than they can afford, and they're being sued literally for the clothes on their back. Most of the poor, which was most people in those days, wore two pieces of clothing, right? So it, they had an inner tunic, which was sort of like, if you imagine those uh, kind of old-fashioned one-piece long johns, or maybe it's not old-fashioned, I know some of you rock some of those, I'm sure, but like, it's like a one-piece long john, and it's usually linen or something like that, and then kind of like, you know, in the Christmas pageants where the kids are all wear bathrobes and they're shepherds and stuff, it's kind of like this outer tunic that was warmer. And, and so this is two pieces of clothing. And what the example is, is that someone is being sued for that inner tunic part. Like, their, their underpants. And this is just a, a form of gross personal injustice from one person to another. Like, the audacity to take someone to court because they couldn't pay you and then to just sue them for something you really don't need. Like, you don't need their underpants, but you're just making a point. You've been just raked through the coals on this one. And the natural impulse would be to fight it, but Jesus gives an outrageous example to make the point. He says, don't seek revenge when you suffer personal injustice. The third example, Jesus uh, when, he, when he's giving this teaching, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. And there was a law that Roman soldiers in occupied territory could force a person to go one mile, could, could, to carry their gear uh, for up to one mile. And then I'm sure they could just like, okay, you, Mark, you went a mile with me, and you know, I dropped the stuff, Frank, your turn, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I want you just... I, I know we hear things in church like all the time, like this example, and the Roman soldier can make you go with them one mile, and it sounds so out here. I, just imagine for a moment that you are with your friends or your family. Uh, imagine, Collins, you're, you're, out, you're out in town with Sarah and the kids, and maybe your parents are visiting, so you, you know, you're, you're the man of the group. You're just having some coffee downtown in Fairhaven, and a Roman soldier comes up, 
points you out and says, you're coming with me, and just force marches you to carry his stuff. Think of the, the degradation, the humiliation that a person would just be plucked out, taken from, uh, maybe you're running a business, you know, you're at your market stand, and you, maybe you've got some employees, and you're giving some instructions, okay, today, you know, we're going to really go out after this, uh, we're going to try and really sell these flatbread, we, I really, really want to move these flatbread, so you're giving the pep talk to your employees, you're the one in charge, all of a sudden, you, you're plucked out, you're not, you're just brought low, it is degrading oppression that is happening, that's, that's the example and all of a sudden, you're maybe a person of status in your own world, and now you're the errand boy or the errand girl of the Roman Empire. Now, whereas an individual suing you for your clothing is, is an act of personal injustice, the Roman soldier is part of a systemic, organized injustice. That's when a dominant group creates laws and policies and ideology that are intended to suppress another group of people. And Jesus is saying, don't seek revenge against such people. In the fourth example, we have to understand something about Mediterranean culture from the first century. In those days, only a superior or an equal could borrow from one another. And it had to be someone who could repay you. Someone who could repay you. There was a deep, intertwined web of system of favors called reciprocity in the ancient Mediterranean world. And so you only would lend or borrow from people who could repay you. Strings are always attached. But just to give to anyone without expectation of reciprocity, that's a form of generosity that wasn't culturally acceptable. And yet Jesus is calling his followers to more than the minimum standard. He's calling us to be like him. After all, that is the goal of being a follower or a disciple of Jesus. It's to become like the master. That's, in case we kind of forgot our way as a church, that's the road that we are on learning how to be like the master. So to sum up, Jesus is not doing away with the law. He's inviting us to live out the ethic of flourishing behind the law. And I'll say this again. Jesus' four examples are not intended to be new laws. Most of them would be irrelevant to you and me today anyway. They're not laws, they're illustrations. They don't cover every situation in our lives. But I find these words from Dallas Willard helpful. He writes, in every concrete situation, we have to ask ourselves, not, not did I do the specific things in Jesus's illustration, these four things that are pretty irrelevant for you and me, not did I do those specific things, but am I being the kind of person that Jesus' illustrations are illustrations of? Am I being the kind of person that Jesus' illustrations are illustrations of? Am I being the kind of person who doesn't seek personal revenge to insult? Am I being the kind of person who doesn't seek violent revenge? Am Am I being the kind of person who is generous with giving without strings attached? 
And I want to tease out three observations from this text as we kind of bring this to a close. First is I want you to notice how intensely personal they are. This is not a teaching that Jesus is giving about groups or nations or families. It's a call for each of us as followers of Jesus to die to our own desire for vengeance and revenge and claiming our rights. Oh, as Americans, we love that one. Note that none of these things that Jesus is talking about in his illustrations are passive. It sort of sounds passive, doesn't it? Just turn the other cheek. Just go the extra mile. Here, just take my... No, it's, it's, they're not passive responses to injustice. Turning the cheek is an active, difficult decision. It's a decision to give more than you're sued for. It's a decision to go the extra mile without strings attached, right? Even though these aren't literally laws we're supposed to follow, living free from revenge and cycles of violence will require sacrifice. Earlier in the service, we heard from John chapter 18 in the gospel, yeah, in in John's gospel. And in that chapter, Jesus is is praying with his disciples. He's in one of his favorite garden places. And all of a sudden, a group of armed soldiers approach. And Judas, one of his own disciples, is leading this mob to arrest Jesus. Now, in that moment, Jesus has been betrayed, which is a You guys, that is a public, like, it is one of the marks of authenticity that the Gospels are historically accurate, because no one making up a religion would have one of the disciples of the leader betray them. Like, it's just such, in the ancient world, it's just such a shocking thing to put in print that Jesus' own, one of twelfth of his disciples betrayed him in public. So Jesus has just been betrayed publicly He's probably suffered a personal trauma because of that, and it's just shameful. And Jesus knows at least two things in that very moment. He knows he's about to be arrested and tortured and killed. But he also knows that at his disposal is the power of the universe. And that with a word, he could have legions of angel armies there to just do whatever he wants. To save him, to save his own, to show who's boss, to show who's in control. But Jesus fulfills his promises. He decides to lay down his personal rights and his dignity and his life for the sake of other people. That night and into the next day, Jesus would absorb the evil of the world in his body in his person, and he would do it for love. Jesus' personal decision of nonviolence won victory for all, even for the many of the people who beat him and accused him and crucified him who later would become followers of Jesus after the resurrection. His death is that powerful. His resurrection is that powerful. It's amazing. But notice that Jesus 
acted as his own agent. He didn't take the disciples down with him. In fact, in that moment, he gave himself up, but the text says that he made sure that none of his disciples were arrested. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not talking about families or others in our sphere of responsibility. So you're turning the cheek or giving, going the extra mile. Your personal choice in that is not supposed to be a choice that puts other people in jeopardy. He's not saying you should endure injustice when it will affect other people in your circle. So if your child is being hurt, which is just a low-hanging fruit example, but I got kids and it's one that speaks to me, you don't tell them to turn the other cheek. You intervene, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about like extreme pacifism. In fact, there's a story of one guy who read this as you should not resist evil to the point where he allowed head lice that he had and said, I'm not gonna resist this natural evil. And he just let him like go and go and go. I mean, this is one of those crazy stories you hear about people being ultra literal. So it's personal choice. But it sure seems to me that it would be a lot easier for us to make that choice if there were people looking out for each other. Why do oppressed people get so angry and frustrated? Because they feel like they're fighting an already unfair fight and they're doing it alone. Jesus calls us earlier in the very same sermon, so this is completely in context. It's from earlier in chapter five. Jesus calls his followers salt and light. Salt resists decay. Light pushes back against the darkness. And while disciples of Jesus don't seek revenge or violence, we are called to resist injustice on behalf of other people. So we can turn the cheek for ourselves. But when it comes to our sisters and brothers, especially people who are more vulnerable than ourselves, we are called to resist as a community. And that then frees them up to be able to make the choice if they want to, to turn a cheek or to go an extra mile because they know that God and his people have their back. How can we help each other to be free from seeking our own vengeance by coming to each other's aid? And I, wanna, I want us to ask the question, you know, as we leave today, like, who am I looking out for besides my own? Who are we looking out for? Who are we advocating for? We could start by asking, who has less power? Who has less voice? Who has less privilege than my inner circle? And some of the, you know, just the groups, the low-hanging fruit groups that come to my mind, children, senior citizens, Ethnic minorities, women, refugees, the poor, sexual minorities, the undereducated and the underemployed. These are, I mean, that's just like basically stream of consciousness. There's so many others that you might know of in your unique, nuanced spot in your world that we could advocate for, that you could advocate for and let them know they're not alone. The final thing I want to say is that Jesus is doing more, so much more than calling us to just be better. That's not a gospel message. Be better is not the gospel. Uh, Jesus is doing more than just painting a picture of what 
life free from vengeance can look like. Like, if all he's doing is showing us what's possible, but not helping us to do it, that's not good news either. Uh, That's cruel. (laughs) It's cruel. When we read the Sermon on the Mount alongside the rest of the gospel, we come to see that Jesus lived these things out, that he literally fulfilled them in his person. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus became the peacemaker. And he makes a way for us, you and me, to be forgiven and to be made new and to be part of this kingdom project that he's on about. And through the power of his spirit, he can make us the kinds of people who are disciples of the peacemaker. In fact, that's what he's calling us to be. Lord, thank you for not just dropping a hard teaching on us and saying, go and do likewise, but thank you for fulfilling this in your life, for for being this type of person that you describe. Thank you for your death and resurrection that covers over my failures and and everyone else's failures, Lord, in these areas. And thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit to develop this kind of life, this kind of fruit in us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me and my sisters and brothers to desire you more, to desire this life more, and to die to the selfishness that gets in the way. Amen.